From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. Brain fog, sleep disorders, pain, debilitating fatigue. It could be something else, but if your patient has recently had COVID, then evidently it could be long COVID. The World Health Organization calls it post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 or PASC. Welcome to the second of The Tea Room's long COVID podcast specials. This episode, we're comparing treatment options around the world. Now, there has been controversy about long COVID treatment abroad. Earlier this year, the Lancet published a study showing how many long COVID patients had lost faith in healthcare service delivery, partly because of poor recognition of long COVID by health services. According to the study, this is leading people with long COVID to seek alternative support and treatment. Enter Facebook. Oh, and Swiss Alpine retreats offering mud baths and liver compresses. So here at the Tea Room, we've been drilling down into the science of long COVID and have found three doctors treating this perplexing condition. From the USA, United Kingdom, and here down under, we look at what approaches are landing and how GPs fit into the puzzle. There are some differences of opinion between our three guests. And there's still a lot of research to be done. But in the interest of expanding the conversation about long COVID, you'll get to hear all three perspectives and approaches. This is another longer episode, folks, but buckle in because if long COVID is not on your clinic doorstep yet, just bide your time because all research suggests that it will be. Let's meet our first guest, Associate Professor Anthony Byrne. He's a respiratory physician or pulmonologist for those listening in the States. Dr. Byrne is a staff specialist at St. Vincent's Hospital and an Associate Professor of Medicine at University of New South Wales. Delighted to be speaking today, Associate Professor Byrne. Thanks so much for your time. No, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me along. Can you tell us where are Australia's long COVID clinics? It's kind of just new, right? It is a relatively new thing as an organised event within a public hospital. There are a number, I believe there's a number of long COVID clinics around Australia. I'm aware of some uh, in Melbourne at the Alfred. I believe there's one in um, there's one in Canberra at the Canberra Hospital and um, there's some in Sydney. And, and I'm sure that in the other capitals have um, long COVID clinics. It's certainly something that's um, sprung up in the last couple of months probably in Australia. But that said, many of us, myself included, have been managing long COVID patients for really two years now, almost two years. Mm. What treatment's being offered at your St Vincent's long COVID clinic? Well, it's a good question, Wendy. Um, So long COVID is uh, a bit of a collection, as you know, of a Mm. number of symptoms. And, And one of the key things I think that's important is to characterize long COVID and the best way to do that I I think as a physician is to think of it logically and systematically and to look at the different organ systems that are involved and and which symptoms are most predominant in the person that you're looking at in front of you. There's there's actually because it's such a spread of symptoms it, it would not do the patient much good to sort of focus on their lungs you know I'm a respiratory physician if that's not their main problem. You know, mm. if their main problem is, in fact, fatigue and cognitive dysfunction and brain fog, then, you know, just doing a bunch of lung tests might not be in their best interest. So so I think... There's a bewildering array of symptoms that they can come in with, right? There's actually a number of diseases in medicine that are a bit like that and their definition is a bit vague and it's only in sort of the research space where there's a, a more formal definition that's come up with and it may or may not be satisfactory you know, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, erythematosus. These, these are other diseases which are a bit sort of nebulous, but there are definitions that are, are, are that do exist. And long COVID, because it's something that's come about in only the last year and a half, really, initially from sort of social media and people sort of saying, look, I'm, I'm not better. And then there's interest from the scientific and medical community about, well, why is this? And that's what we found in our um, ADAPT study, which we uh, led here at St Vincent's Hospital, which was an observational cohort study right from the start of the pandemic in March of 2020, uh, recruiting patients to understand what's going on with them. And it it was recognised after some months that some of them have these persistent symptoms. And we wondered if that might be the case. And, And there was some symptoms that jumped out 
And so there was a, a definition that, you know, we came up with initially in, in just in that study that they had, you know, chest pain or breathlessness or fatigue that was persistent. And then, you know, last year the World Health Organization has sort of more formally come up with a definition of beyond 12 weeks and persistent symptoms not explained by something else and confirmed or probable SARS-CoV-2 virus. So these are sort of the common, some of the key aspects that are a part of the definition. But as you say, there's just basically pick a symptom and um, that, that could be long COVID. But yeah. it, it, is, it is important to put that little caveat in there that there's not some other alternative explanation. Yeah. And so before we get to treatment, um, you know, as a physician, we have to look at investigation and diagnosis because if we don't have that right, then we're just sort of throwing things around. Is there a risk of overdiagnosis when there are such an array of symptoms, possible symptoms? I think there is a risk of that. I mean, there are sort of conditions that are not uncommon and that can be made worse by any sort of illness, severe illness. So, you know, anxiety, for example, or deconditioning or some conditions that we know are very prevalent in post-COVID population, one of which, for example, is obstructive sleep apnea. And it's a common cause of fatigue and people may or may not know that they've got that condition. Mm. But when they come to our clinic, that might be one of the investigations that we do to investigate their fatigue and tiredness and hypersomnolence. So we might do a diagnostic sleep study and we might diagnose obstructive sleep apnea, for example. Now, it's very unlikely that that's come about because of their COVID. It's very likely that they actually had that before COVID, but they've got it now. It's a diagnosis. We can treat it. There's something we can do about it. We might put someone on a CPAP machine. It might help their fatigue and hypersomnolence, or it might not. If it's helping alleviate some of the symptoms that they're having a hard time with in long COVID, then it's a, a good outcome. Exactly. So there's those general treatments and then there's sort of more specific treatments. And, you know, some of the things uh, that, that are, are being thought of and are under investigation. And I think it's really important that we do investigate this these treatments in a scientific way mm. um, rather than just throwing them around. So as part of a, a randomised trial, for example, looking at some specific anti-inflammatory medications that we know work for other conditions and applying them for a long COVID patient that has increased inflammation. Like we know that you would have, um, with, with your other conversations with mm. researchers, come up with specific cytokines which are overactive and persistent in patients with long COVID. Are any and of those trials underway, to your knowledge? They are. They are, in fact, underway. In fact, I was on a call on Monday with um, some researchers from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and, and they've got some funding to do a randomised controlled trial or randomised trial. It's on not, what? Um, what, are they, what are they looking at? Well, that particular one's looking at colchicine, which is a medication mm -hmm. that's used for acute gout and it's also used for myocarditis, for pericarditis. Mm -hmm. um, it has, you know, really good anti-inflammatory effects and, um, and we know that, that that occurs in long COVID. What I've seen a little bit in some long COVID uh, suggestions is similar treatment for myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and some of those approaches for treatment are disputed, mm. uh, in, depending on who you're talking to. So exercise, rehabilitation. What sort of approach is St Vincent's taking in that respect? So our long COVID clinic has a couple of aspects to it. Uh, in, it. It may be a little bit unique in that way in that we've got a respiratory component, an arm of the clinic, if you like, with respiratory physicians and then a rehabilitation arm of the clinic with rehabilitation physicians. And then across both, we've got psychologists and physiotherapists and nurses. And so what that allows us to do is to, is to do these comprehensive assessments and sort of come up with what the main problems are for the patient and are there some additional diagnoses that we can come up with and treat or can we focus in on what the main symptoms are? So, so getting in fatigue, for example, and weakness. So, you know, a, a supervised rehabilitation program can be useful in some people. Now, there might be some controversy about that in terms of some people having persistent inflammation and exercise making it worse. But for the most part, I think that there is a benefit in having those conversation and assessments and potentially being part of a supervised rehabilitation process. Mm. And then the other thing that's really important, I think we're lucky at St Vincent's to have, is Professor Stephen Foes, the head of rehab at St Vincent's, who's another lead on the clinic. And, you know, he has uh, experience in chronic pain. 
And there is a lot of overlap with long COVID patient sufferers that have chronic pain and sort of like a chronic fatigue type picture. And so we can sort of sometimes extrapolate treatments that we would use for chronic pain or chronic fatigue to, to, to look at offering those to, to some mm. patients that might benefit. And the psychological aspects are really important. I what, mean, are the, what are the psychological aspects to it? Well, we, we know, we just know in medicine that people that have chronic disabling symptoms from whatever cause, be that cancer or, or arthritis or whatever, are just at high risk of depression and mood disorders, for example. You know, it, it stands to reason if you can't do stuff that you used to be able to do, you're going to be not that happy about it and that's going to result in, in, in imbalances in the brain, in neurotransmitters and predisposed to depressive and, and other disorders. You know, anxiety is something that's also really common and that, that's why it's really helpful to have, say, a psychologist and, and the involvement of, of referrals to psychiatrists and treatment of those conditions which are not caused by but exacerbated by these problems. It's a drug that rheumatologists are very familiar with. Will GPs be served by connecting with rheumatologists if they've got a patient who has long COVID? I think the value, the really, the strengths of GPs, there's so many of them, but one is we'll know this patient well and because it's a chronic illness, GPs are good at dealing with chronic illness, you know, depression, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, and we know that there's risk factors for long COVID, and they include some specific diseases that the GP will perhaps already be treating the patient for, diabetes, for example, hypertension, for example, older age. And so those conditions become, in a long COVID space, even more important to manage. And, uh, you know, we, we're also seeing that there are some reactivation of some infections or chronic diseases in long COVID patients. So there's some literature on that looking at, for example, reactivation of certain viruses, shingles, um, varicella zoster virus or herpes simplex virus or, or cytomegalovirus or Epstein-Barr virus. So, so these are some things that can happen in a long COVID patient. That, that a GP that's familiar with the patient will be able to help manage, help manage their diabetes, help manage their mood disorder with anxiety, depression. Look at their sleep and see how, you know, ask them how they're sleeping. Look at their sleep routine. And then, and then think about if they've got chronic pain as an issue, uh, arthralgias, joint problems, then look at specialist referral there. Or if there's, you know, psychiatry, uh, psychiatric problems that, you know, can't be managed and dealt with well with a psychologist or, you know, maybe some low-dose antidepressants, that's something to consider. Um, then there's some other referrals that may happen, mm. may, may be, uh, you know, helpful. So I think that's the, the GP role in this is, is chronic disease, big picture, complex assess, you know, those assessments. And then for those really difficult patients, you know, that's where a, a long COVID clinic would be helpful. Look, if the GP's done the basics, What's the bar for referring someone to a long COVID clinic? Well, for the respiratory arm, I think, you know, it's those persistent respiratory symptoms that are unexplained. You know, it's, if we're sort of triaging and prioritising those patients, obviously, that were uh, admitted to hospital with acute COVID, you know, hypoxic respiratory failure, pneumonitis, because we know that they're more likely to go on to develop long COVID. So it makes mm. sense to see them. So we should be seeing them as a matter of course. And then there's the older patients that were maybe cared for in a hospital in the home. They didn't. They weren't sick enough to come to hospital. But you know, so, so those sort of older patients or, or or comorbid patients with comorbidities. The more comorbidities you have, that's probably a, the bar there. The more symptoms you have at diagnosis, and the more of them that persist. You know, that's something to to refer. The other thing to say is that, you know, there's this association with anosmia or, or, you know, reduced or absent smell and cognitive dysfunction. So uh, that's that's sort of a symptom to, to watch out for, I think, for GPs. So it's not uncommon to lose your sense of smell with SARS-CoV-2 virus. But if it, if it hasn't come back after a couple of weeks or a month or a couple of months, it's a bit of a red flag. You know, if there's problems of cognitive process. What does it indicate? What does what does it possibly indicate? Well, it, it sort of indicates it's a, there's a greater likelihood of um, dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction, 
Mm. Um, so mental processing, higher function stuff, there's an association with that. And it, and in some patients, you know, so Bruce Brew, who's a, a neurologist here at St. Vincent's of international renown and, and did a lot of his um, work with HIV virus. So when SARS-CoV-2 virus comes along, Bruce was very interested in that and he was pretty convinced that it's going to affect the brain. And, and sure enough, yeah. you know, we've got the evidence and, and studies now that are saying that, yes, that's the case. And so doing sort of specific tests on them, um, you know, in a research space and, and some of that might include an MRI and I'm not advocating that all people have a cranial yeah. MRI, but there are there are roles for these sort of specialised expensive yeah. tests. Are you seeing any patients who didn't have asthma but now do with long COVID? Oh, I can't say that that's sort of something that's jumped out, but um, I think it's important as a respiratory physician to measure lung function, and we certainly are measuring lung function in people that have had COVID. And there's one we discussed today actually on one of our meetings, and this is someone that, you know, hasn't got a formal diagnosis of asthma but has lung function and they've got a response to bronchodilators. So when we give them salbutamol, they, you know, it improves their lung function. So does that person have asthma? Well, they may, they probably don't, but they're getting a, a potential benefit from a medication that we use for asthma. So, so it may be that some patients might get a benefit from some repurposed respiratory medications. Um, so that, that's something that could happen. I think probably more in a research space. Um, I wouldn't be advocating for using off-label PBS products, but that's something to consider. The, the other thing I think that's important for you know GPs and other people to be aware of is that you know so asthma is a chronic disease; it's incurable, and um, often people with asthma downplay their symptoms. So if a person with asthma is telling you they're breathless, you've got to listen to that. You know, so the patient that I saw recently that has asthma. Um, on a background of smoking history and has had COVID and now has long COVID, you know, when they're more breathless than usual but their lung function on spirometry looks similar, then we have to start thinking, why is that? So in this particular patient, you know, we did I did some other investigations including a nuclear medicine VQ lung scan looking for blood clots and that test was positive and it shows that that person has small blood clots within the lungs wow. and we know that that's in, you know increased after being in hospital and after having COVID specifically so putting that person on blood thinning medication for their blood clots uh, has helped their breathlessness. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? I know I think it's good to have a global perspective on this I was talking to this uh, to someone else recently and I think you know you, you've obviously got a global audience and you know, long COVID, uh, COVID, is, it's a new disease. It's it's a global disease. And uh, access to care is something that's really important. And we're talking about long COVID clinics. And, you know, I'm in Sydney and, and we're lucky enough to have this long COVID clinic at St. Vincent's and access to specialist care. But, you know, I've just got back from overseas and, and in, in many settings around the world, you know, that's a luxury. And, in fact, with, you know, treatment of acute COVID, if you can prevent acute COVID, and treat acute COVID well, then hopefully you'll prevent these downstream sequelae. And, and that's a really, I think it's a really important message. You know, my background's in uh, respiratory medicine, but also tuberculosis. And one of the reasons that I was really interested in COVID is because it's a respiratory virus, a respiratory disease. But right from the start, I was really interested in, and suspicious that it was going to lead to downstream sequelae. And in tuberculosis, some of your listeners may know, like that's the second most common cause of infectious disease death in the world. It was the first up until 2020 <laughs> when SARS-CoV-2 came along. But there is a downstream sequelae after tuberculosis that's becoming increasingly more aware. And we see this now in COVID. And um, the way to prevent it is to prevent infection, to prevent disease. So, you know, it gets us back to got these vaccinations but we've also got access to care for acute infection. Thank you so much Associate Professor Anthony Byrne from St Vincent's Long Covid Clinic. Now we're connecting up with the USA. Let me introduce Dr Bruce Patterson. 
the former Director of Neurology at Stanford University and publisher of over 140 research papers. Dr. Patterson has been a viral pathologist for 25 years and is co-founder of the private company in CellDX. Thanks for joining us today in the Tea Room, Dr. Patterson. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Dr. Patterson, can you tell us how does long COVID manifest in patients? I mean, I think that's the main question that everybody has been looking for. And what we did is we started very early. I was in China in January of 2020, and we started doing trials in acute COVID patients and noticed after 60 and 90 days, these patients were better. They were out of the hospital. They didn't die. Um, but by no stretch of the imagination was their immune system normal. So we applied um, over 150 biomarkers and artificial intelligence to figure out exactly what was going on in these, quote, long haulers and whether or not there was some uh, immunologic abnormality. What did you find? Well, we found that they had a completely different immune profile than acute covid and we patterned that and what we found in the first paper that we published in frontiers of immunology was that it was dominated by markers of blood vessel inflammation and actually elevation in markers such as vegf il6 tnf alpha ccl5 and this one marker scd40 l which is a marker of platelet activation so early on we saw that there was a uh, setup for the microclots that everybody is describing now that is just part of the presentation of long COVID, but uh, not necessarily the mechanism, as I'll explain. Right. So the role of the CCR5 receptor seems central to your treatment. Could you also give a quick explainer about the CCR5 receptor? It's the one that HIV targets, right? Correct. The central role of CCR5 is to move immune cells to sites of inflammation. And frankly, it was just by happenstance that CCR5 was a co-receptor uh, for HIV and started my career looking at CCR5 uh, way back in the mid-1990s. Uh, but the role of CCR5 in SARS-CoV-2 is the fact that it is expressed on cells of the innate immune response, which is the early response in acute COVID, but it's also expressed on the cells where we found residual SARS-CoV-2 protein, the S1 protein in long haulers, 15, 17 months, even close to two years after initial infection. Mm -hmm. And those cells migrate all over the body and by mm. using CCR5 antagonists, we can keep those cells from migrating all over the body and causing uh, blood vessel inflammation, which we think is really the heart of long COVID mechanistically. Right. And we're taking an approach where we've found drugs that target the specific immune abnormalities, in, in particular, the cytokine abnormalities and when we're able to shut down these cytokines, five different symptom scores that have been used in numerous clinical trials, for instance, a fatigue score, a dysautonomia score, a shortness of breath score, a neuro score, all five of those symptom scores as reported by the patients go down statistically significantly in six to 12 weeks with a therapy that's directed against uh, the cytokines that are uh, abnormal in long COVID. So the drugs, I believe you're using are pravastatin and Merovirac? That's correct. And, and occasionally we'll use other drugs when we have patients who, for instance, are bedridden or, or are particularly severe, and we want to get their cytokine levels back down to normal quickly. We may add a, another drug to that cocktail, but that's the main cocktail that accomplishes two things. Number one, it reduces the migration of the cells still carrying proteins from SARS-CoV-2 in the absence of replicating virus, but it prevents them from binding to the blood vessels. And if they can't bind to the blood vessels, they die off. And then the inflammation right. uh, slowly resolves. Mm. And this 
this treatment is following diagnosis through a blood test, I believe. That's correct. The, the blood test that we um, developed called Incelkine, which is being run by several reference laboratories in the United States and a large reference lab named SynLab in the EU and the, in the UK. Are there any other treatments that go along with the drug therapy? Well, we've, we've treated several patients in combination with apheresis, which a lot of people talk about, that basically removes microclots from long COVID patients. But what we found is that's not enough, that those patients eventually, their symptoms come back. And the premise between combining the two therapies, which we've done uh, here locally with some of the hospitals, is that, yes, it's great to remove microclots if they exist, but at the end of the day, you have to remove what's causing them in the first place. Mm. And that is inflammation of the blood vessels, you know, activation of the platelets. Activation of the platelets brings in other immune cells. It brings in von Willebrand factor and other clotting factors. And so you really have to remove the cause as opposed to removing the result of that blood vessel inflammation. So if only we could do that know, for every disease in the world. <laughs> well, again, I, I think at the end of the day, you have to figure out what the real cause is. And I think, and I agree with you. I think we've missed with other autoimmune diseases like lupus and scleroderma, what the root cause is for those autoimmune diseases. And frankly, uh, much like HIV pushed the molecular revolution uh, for cancer and, and medicine in general, I think COVID is going to push the immunologic revolution in medicine um, and, and things like proteomics, where instead of doing gene sequencing and looking for genes here and looking for genes there, and we raised the issue with our paper that we published in January in Frontiers in Immunology that there could be cells that carry the protein from a virus or in the case of Lyme, a bacteria in the absence of the RNA or DNA, or the RNA and DNA is fragmented and is incapable of, of replicating and, and creating a new organism. The treatment that you are you, the drug treatment that you are using is seems to be a very different to some of the, the treatment options that we're seeing in long COVID. Do you have critics to the work that you've done? I mean, I, I, of course we do because we were, we got out early. Um, we, we were way ahead of the game. We put a stake in the ground. We discovered a mechanism that we think is a major mechanism at play. And the fact is when we treat and address that mechanism, these patients get better. And one of the worst things you can do to a long COVID patient is make them exercise. We've published in all of our papers that exercise mobilizes these monocytes, which carry the S1 protein. So huh? it's, it's and, and those cells can actually go through the blood brain barrier. So mm. exercise and stress are two things that cause mobilization of the cells that you don't want to be mobilized. What about stretching? Well, stretching, I think is okay. I, I think what we caution against is resistance training, biking, running. I mean, walking uh, at a proper pace is fine, but certainly the group of people that have tried to exercise their way or physical therapy their way out of long COVID it's been a disaster in the United States. I know, you know, several facilities that were trying it and those patients end up contacting us because they're not getting better. Mm. And like I said, yeah, we have critics, but we've also published, we're now on our eighth long COVID paper and we publish everything that we discover, everything that we figure out. And we have one of the first treatment papers on long COVID being peer reviewed as we speak. Do you have any insights on treating asthma, which is associated with long COVID? Is it appearing to be different to other types of asthma? I'll tell you, we don't see a lot of asthma in long COVID. And in fact, one of the markers that was chosen along with us and by our artificial intelligence was interleukin-13, 
which is a marker of more of a you know allergic uh, response. So we don't see a lot of IL-13 uh, elevation in COVID long haulers. And we don't see a lot of asthma. We see a lot of, quote, shortness of breath. But I'll tell you, if you put a pulse oximeter on their finger, their oxygen exchange is normal. The, wow. the reason they have shortness of breath is the inflammation in the pleura, which is the lining of the lungs, the rib cage. It's the, it's the mechanical aspects of breathing that feel restrictive. Mm -hmm. and, and again, in our um, current paper that's out in preprint and it's out for peer review, one of the symptom scores is a dyspnea score, which is shortness of breath. And we show improvement in the dyspnea score with six to 12 weeks of treatment with Moravarok and, and statins. And we show which cytokines correlate with improvements in the um, dyspnea score. I'd just like to add one of the most important parts of the new paper was our statisticians went to great efforts to correlate the changes in biomarkers with the improvement in symptoms. So now that we can say, I can say without hesitation that the fatigue score improved when interleukin-2 and TNF-alpha decreased. And the p-value on the correlation of TNF-alpha with fatigue was 10 to the minus 5 uh, with a 1. So highly, highly statistically significant correlation between TNF-alpha and interleukin-2 and improvements in fatigue score. Now, that paper should uh, be followed up by a randomized controlled trial. Is that something that started yet? So actually, this paper was, was designed the way we would design our clinical trial with very strict inclusion criteria, very strict exclusion criteria, um, the symptom scores that would be recommended by the FDA. And that's why we're so excited with, number one, the statistical significance of improvement in the symptom scores, because we designed this in an attempt to be a dry run for our clinical trial design. And we are very close to submitting our clinical trial design. You mentioned that you had 20,000 people that long haulers that uh, signed up within CellDX. What is your success rate with them? I think we've, we've said 80 to 85%. And that was well before we came up with the new classification scheme so that we could, what I talk about now is pure PASC and PASC plus. So that rate may be even higher when we're talking about pure long COVID. In other words, long COVID not complicated by Epstein-Barr, long COVID not complicated by uh, prior Lyme disease, long COVID not complicated by cytomegalovirus or HHV6. So uh -huh. I would say with our inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, that numbers could, those numbers could be higher. And I think that's, again, what's so exciting about the paper that's out right now is we were able to use the new classification scheme uh, to sort through these five conditions, which includes fibromyalgia, that have absolutely the same symptoms. Could you list the five conditions? So COVID long haulers, ME-CFS, uh, post-treatment Lyme disease, uh, post-vaccination long haulers, and fibromyalgia have almost identical symptoms be interesting to see the results from that it um it's it's really exciting because of the the focus that it shed on on immunology and basic immunology and for it me seems when to I have shaken up it, it, it questions and shakes up some of the long-held assumptions about immunology well, it does. Uh, I'll tell you when I was in China in January of 2020. Sorry, um, how did you get to China in January 2020? <laughs> I, I have to find out. Um, no, no, like, no. were you there on holiday and you went, hey, no, here's no, an opportunity? I, nobody told, you know, I, I, I knew nothing. So um, it was the first week in January 2020. 
Where were and you working at the time? So I was, again, I was at Insult DX, but I was going over to discuss a business deal with a company in Shanghai to use our immune profiling technology for cancer, for CAR T therapy, right? And so while I was over there talking about cancer and CAR T therapy, somebody asked me, have you heard about the quote immune virus? And I said, I'm a viral, I'm, you know, I was the former head of virology at Stanford. Uh, I'm a viral pathologist for 25 years. I said, I've never heard of an immune virus. I said, are you talking about something like HIV? And they said, no, no, it's, it's a virus that causes um, just this explosion of the immune system. And so I said, really, I'm like, show me something. And so there was a paper in one of the Chinese journals, which um, I couldn't read, but I could look at a table and saw, you know, all these different uh, immunologic abnormalities, which we, you know, basically grew to know as um, the cytokine storm. And frankly, I saw extremely high levels of CCL5, which is the ligand for CCR5. And that's when we started thinking about it in CellDX, how we could use CCR5 antagonists, maybe as a way to shut down this cytokine storm because the cytokine storm was being driven by the innate immune response because no one's ever seen the virus before. And the fact is anything that our bodies haven't seen, our innate immune system kicks in and that's very much macrophage driven. And I knew that CCR5 antagonists reprogram macrophages to become less pro-inflammatory. So we could shut down the ILS, the interleukin-6, which was one of the big hallmarks of acute COVID. We could shut down TNF-alpha, which was another product of, of pro-inflammatory monocytes. And the other thing I was thinking is, indeed, the T regulatory cells come in and turn off the innate immune response. So I'm like, well, CCR5 antagonists could have a multitude of positive effects in acute COVID. And that's when we started trials of CCR5 antagonists in acute COVID. Uh, and eventually figured out that, that they may even be better for uh, long COVID. What indicates that it's the treatment creating good outcomes and not just the condition resolving itself over time? So you've had like 80 to 85% success rate. What percentage of that could be people just actually getting through it themselves? I, I think if you've known uh, long haulers and seen enough of them, you know that they don't get better uh, on their own. Or if they get better, they get better, you know, 18 months later, 20 months later, but they're not, they're certainly not back to pre-COVID levels. So yeah, we've, we've seen enough patients who are still suffering or who come to us after 18 months and are no better, who've never been treated, but just found out about us to almost have placebo group within the 20,000 patients that we've seen because they've presented to us, you know, well after their long COVID symptoms started. Mm. How much does the treatment generally cost a person in the US? Well, again, I think that's, it all depends on their insurance. Insurance covers the medications in some cases. There's other resources to get the medications through manufacturers. In Cell DX ourselves, we will start manufacturing Maraviroc and we will make it accessible and affordable. You know, I've treated a few patients in Australia and they've been able to get it to, through sources in, in Europe and in Asia for, you know, about $250 per month US. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> it is a lot more in the US if insurance doesn't cover it. So we're working on that in the States, but uh, outside the states, we have we have some sources um, to get uh, more affordable drugs around the world. Because frankly, we just launched in the EU, we just launched in the UK um, our 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 treatment program. And like I said, I think we're we're hopeful that we can get launched in um, Australia. Uh, obviously, they have a well developed uh, laboratory system for us to um, get the test um, established over there. Mm. And certainly our telemed, we can use um, anywhere. 
I thought the UK launch was delayed somehow. It was only because we had to wait for the Ministry of Health to approve shipment of samples from the UK to the EU. You're all set up there now. Yeah. And in fact, I think next Tuesday, um, the first set of samples will be drawn. I just don't understand why everyone hasn't gone, this is a good idea, let's do it too. You know what? Having lived through the HIV pandemic and starting my research career in HIV, it doesn't surprise me. Everybody has Everyone jumped on the vaccine. Everyone's like, this is a good idea, let's do it. I think they were forced. You couldn't travel without it. You couldn't, you couldn't go into restaurants without it. I mean, um, but researchers, me, think, like we're sharing resources. They were like, yeah, we're, we, okay, that one works over there. Let's get it here. Why are they not doing the same with this? I have no idea. But um, you know what? Like I said, and then for us, an unfortunate experiment is the fact that there are long haulers post-vaccination who've never had COVID. And they have the exact same symptoms. And we have a paper ready to submit for peer review that showed that we found the S1 protein in their monocytes six, 12, you know, 15 months after um, vaccination. So it actually demonstrates that in the absence of replicating virus with just the S1, which is what we proposed in COVID long haulers, that that's enough to cause long hauler symptoms. Like I said, I don't like to quote it a lot, um, but it is an unfortunate experiment that showed that the mechanism that we proposed uh, is at least a major one um, in that the S1 protein uh, in long-lived monocytes is capable of causing vascular inflammation. And if we treat it, we can make patients better. So yes, I think you know, it has been a struggle for us because we start, we got out early, we proposed a mechanism, we've, but we, all we've done is publish, 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 publish. So to detractors, we say, you know what, I haven't seen anything um, published or any other, um, you know, regimens that, you know, that are addressing the mechanisms that they propose. So you know, we're going to continue to publish and publish yeah. and publish. And with 20,000 patients, we have an enormous, enormous bank of data with which to, you know, describe this disease and, and, and investigate this. Disease. It sounds like it. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I, I, um, I mean, I'd like to add, I mean, we're collaborating with, with academic centers. We're collaborating with world-class immunologists we're we're yeah i i want to just make sure everybody understands that we're collaborating with with everybody that we can and we're willing to share data and share samples and you know i i think like you said i don't know why that's not being done more readily in long covid as it was um in developing the vaccines but maybe it was because there was just nothing absolutely nothing with the vaccines but um, that's how do people get hold of you through you know at www.inceldx.com and info at inceldx.com and you can get uh, get a hold of any of us that's great dr bruce patterson thank you so much for your time thank you it's been a pleasure That was Dr. Bruce Patterson from InCellDX. We're now going to move from talk about CCR5 cells to the approach that the British National Health Service is taking. Dr. Melissa Heitman has been clinical lead for the Long COVID Clinic at the University College London Hospital. The clinic's a multi-professional and multi-specialty service, which integrates with community assessment and community rehabilitation services. Dr. Heitman is also member of the National Health Service Long COVID Task Force and co-authored the guidelines for primary and community care long COVID pathways. Thank you so much for joining us on The Tea Room, Dr. Heitman. Thank you very much for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about the treatment that's being offered at University College London Hospital in your long COVID clinic? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our service has been open for just over two years, which seems incredible now. And obviously, 
the way um, we try to support patients with long COVID has evolved during that time. So really, I would say the mainstay of treatment remains focused at helping people to manage the various symptoms which long COVID has caused um, for them. And uh, we're still seeing that the the best benefits come from the plans um, implemented by physiotherapists and occupational health therapists, uh, which can help with particularly difficult symptoms. For example, um, disordered breathing pattern, how to manage fatigue, how to improve their sleep quality. Um, Mm. And there's only actually been like a small role for medicines um, in this condition so far. And that's, you know, for particular situations like managing pain or migraine, helping to manage palpitations or dizziness. So, um, yes, like I say, that the the therapy approach and also um, actually psychology support, because this is a very difficult illness. And sometimes having, you know, strategies to help you cope with those physical symptoms uh, and, and make sure that your mental well-being is as good as possible uh, is also really an important part of um, trying to help recovery. It's a part of that multi-professional approach that you're taking there. Absolutely. That, that multi-professional team has been really important right from the beginning. Um, and we've all learned a lot from each other, which has been one of the positives about this uh, new condition. What have you learned? So I've learned that... Um, When you're faced with a a new disease, you need to keep a really open mind. Um, You need to ask help from specialists and therapists as widely as possible. Mm. Um, And you need to learn quickly. Um, And one of the ways you can learn quickly is by documenting as much as you can about a condition and then continuously reviewing it. Um, and and discussing it to to work out, you know, how could we be doing better? And then, of course, as early as possible, trying to bring in research into the clinic to try and answer some of the difficult questions and hopefully throw up better treatment options. So you're ahead of the game with regards to long COVID. Australia, we're really uh, only more recently starting, very new actually, starting some of these long COVID clinics in capital cities. So in terms of learning quickly, as a, a multi-professional team, did you have like daily meetings or weekly meetings? How did you kind of get that whole agency approach happening? Yeah. So in our favour was the fact that we we started our service as an emergency response during the first wave of the pandemic in London. Mm. And that meant that we had some staff who'd been redeployed to that emergency response And therefore, we were together every single day. Um, We're also lucky because um, my my clinical background is as as an integrated respiratory physician. So we have a a long history of working with a wide range of therapies to help people with other lung conditions. And that turned out to be quite a reasonable platform, actually, for developing a long COVID care pathway. Um, But it's very important to stress, obviously, long COVID is not a Uh, simply a respiratory disease it's very much a a multi-system disease Mm. so I think in our favour was uh, the timing that we started the support we had from our organisation at University College London Hospital um, and the individuals that were available Um, so you know uh, good fortune was on our side. Bit of luck yeah. And and then the response from uh, NHS England to try and rapidly find dedicated ring-fenced funding for these services that was obviously a really key enabler Um, and the fact that the National Institute of Clinical Excellence moved quickly to develop a case definition uh, that's that's a very important step in a new disease. And has that then progressed to uh, disability allowances through welfare for people who haven't been able to go back to work? Yes. So I think right from the start, it was clear that this illness had a major impact on people's ability to work. So 60% of our patients were unable to work at all, which was uh, really shocking. And in fact, 10% of our patients are NHS staff because um, they were disproportionately affected by COVID infection in the early months. So there's always been a really strong emphasis on the importance of occupational health and what we call vocational rehab. Um, So that's about helping an individual uh, have those conversations with their employer, working out what is a realistic approach to the sick leave they need and where possible that phased return to work. 
I wouldn't say we got that right from the start. You know, that's something that's uh, improving all the time. But we have been working closely with occupational health departments and various um, material has been produced to help employers who are supporting an individual with long COVID. Um, in terms of disability allowance, um, that's something that comes into play after 12 months of a, of a significant illness. And that's been quite difficult because we haven't known what what the outcome of long COVID is and how long people will be unwell. And uh, actually, each person is on a very different journey with long COVID and some people get better quite quickly. So it's something that is a key part of how we support people. But I, I'm not sure that as a as an, a system and economy, we've got all the answers there yet. Mm. Wow. I've got a couple of uh, everything you're saying is popping ideas into my head. If we <laughs> track it back a little bit in terms of you mentioned, uh, you know, the fatigue as a yes. symptom, sleep disorders as a symptom and another form of breathlessness. Yeah. So uh, we, we call it disordered breathing pattern. So mm-hmm. For some reason in, in long COVID, it's it's very common that patients experience breathlessness. And then when you look at the way they're breathing, it's a, it's an ineffective pattern which contributes to that feeling of breathlessness. And we're not quite sure why that comes to pass. But initially, it was assumed that was because it, it might have started with a viral pneumonia, um, which sets people in a funny breathing pattern. But actually... We see that breathing pattern even when someone's not even had the pneumonia component of COVID, because obviously with Omicron infection, that um, you know the virus has a slightly different pattern of illness in the early weeks, doesn't it? Mm. So yes, the physiotherapy um, input to help with people's breathing patterns was really successful, actually, in helping get on top of one of that symptoms. And, and breathlessness is a very unpleasant sensation. Um, Could you give us a, a just? A- a quick rundown on what the physiotherapy is for that or what the approach is for that breathing yeah. disorder? So it's learnt uh, or they've learnt that skill set from working with, with patients, for example, uh, with asthma who have difficult, difficult breathing pattern. Um, and it's, it's based around trying to improve the control of the breath that a person has and breathing um, with the lower part of their chest rather than with the, the upper part um, and yes, just just um, they talk about box breathing and there's um, a number of uh, online video uh, group classes that are delivered in the UK now uh, to help um, patients, which are really enjoyable, actually, for them because they get a chance to meet other individuals with the same condition. And um, so some, sometimes it's done by a group consultation and sometimes one to one with a respiratory physiotherapist. Um, and it usually takes about six sessions of work to, to to support a patient through learning how to breathe more effectively. So once they come through the long COVID clinic, they're connected up through this video group program. So yeah, the, the stages are that the patient's referred by their GP um, in our system, and then they're assessed through the clinic, which has a doctor and a therapist component to the assessment. And we try and, and then from that appointment, work out what we call a therapy and treatment prescription Um, and the the therapy is is what we describe as multifaceted um, and needs to you know include a a number of different components depending on the symptoms that that person has so it may be respiratory physiotherapy for the breathing pattern and then um, some focused work on managing fatigue and finding the right balance of exercise and rest for that individual to support their recovery Um, Mm. and then Sometimes there's additional um, work needed, for example, on managing what we call post-exertional symptoms, Mm. sometimes known as post-exertional malaise, Mm. um, and how to deal with the palpitations, how to uh, improve your sleep, your diet, because all of those little components of general well-being can, you know, add up together to bring people an important benefit whilst we wait for that, you know, magic bullet, that cure which makes this horrible illness goes away. We don't have yeah. that at the moment. Is the uh, treatment approach for managing fatigue similar in any way to some of the treatments that are around for myalgic encephalomyelitis or the chronic fatigue yeah. syndrome? So I think what's challenging about ME, CFS, is that mm. there have been really different models of care and the patient group are quite um, varied. 
Uh, yes. we, we've separated out the pathways for long COVID and ME because we consider them to be different illnesses. Um, and for long COVID, we really wanted to develop a consistent approach because only from that can you then evaluate where you're at and identify improvements. So I would say we've learned a lot from some of the approaches in ME, um, but um, the, the, the approach to managing pacing and fatigue has to be very bespoke to an individual. Um, so, for example, some patients actually see quite important improvements with gentle exercise, whereas others who are getting those post-exertional symptoms, so you feel worse after exercise, in them we might have more of a focus to start with on the pacing component. Um, and that can be quite difficult to do that well um, when you're used to leading a busy, active life. Um, mm. So we focus on the pace, pacing and then we move forward from there. And the aim is always to look towards improvement and recovery because we do see that with a with a proactive approach, patients do start to get better. So this is not a hopeless situation. That's really encouraging. Yeah. How do you integrate with community assessment and rehab services? So because we've always recognised that they're key to the effective treatment, they have, they're have they a fundamental part of what we call our pathway. So, uh, for example, in our service, the, the referral comes in, we see the patient in the clinic, we do the therapy prescription, uh, we might do some mini interventions within the, the central clinic, and then we pass them over to the post-COVID rehab team who work in their local community um, so that they can get that treatment as close to home as possible. Um, and those individuals are people who have trained with us throughout the journey of learning how to manage long COVID. And they include a range of therapists and psychologists. Um, and then what we do is uh, every week we meet with those teams via um, a video uh, meeting platform. And we discuss cases, uh, make sure we're supporting them with difficult questions and if needed, bring the patient back into the clinic for additional tests. And um, so really, we're just trying to work together as we all learn about this uh, new condition in, in our in our region. That's a really robust network. You've, you've pulled them in to do training together. And then yes. weekly, you're having a, a, a teleconference to chat about how things are going. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, doing being a long COVID clinician is hard because the condition is complex. Um, you might be out of your comfort zone with what you used to do. Um, so I think we found it really beneficial to stay tightly connected. And it's mm. easy to do now that we know how to video conference, isn't it? So um, yeah. that's been one big bonus of that technology. It's, uh, I guess it accelerates the learning as well when you're all coming together and saying, what have we, what have we done this week? Absolutely. Yeah, and the confidence and actually the job satisfaction, I think, which is really important. Especially when it's such a difficult, confusing, bewildering disease or exactly. condition. Exactly, yeah. Can I ask about the sleep disorders? What is the What are the approaches that have been taken for treatment? So, yeah, it, it's been surprisingly common that people report um, that they have very poor quality sleep that they wake often during the night or wake feeling unrefreshed. And um, I think approaches to what we call sleep hygiene have been you know, established in, in other conditions. And really we've, we follow that same advice, which is about um, trying to make sure that during the day you get as much activity and daylight as uh, you can manage without you know, exhausting yourself or making fatigue worse. Um, and that you try to um, set your sleeping hours uh, to follow the sun. So um, not going to bed too late and setting a regular bedtime and a regular getting up time that you stick to. Um, and obviously the common sense about avoiding caffeinated drinks, you know, after lunchtime um, and, um, you know, healthy eating approach, uh, managing um, any anxiety or stress that you have, you know, with those psychology interventions. Mm -hmm. So it's not rocket science. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's the common sense stuff that's actually increasingly available on the internet, isn't it? Because insomnia is, is a very mm -hmm. widespread problem. But it, but obviously, if you are um, already struggling with fatigue, if your sleep is also really poor, that's a, a real driving factor. Um, mm -hmm. And 
we've occasionally identified that some patients, for example, have sleep disordered breathing on top of, you know, poor quality sleep. And that can be treated with other options such as, Mm. you know, the CPAP masks. Um, So, yeah, it's just important not to forget about sleep quality when you're speaking to a patient. What's the cutoff point for someone, for a GP to refer a patient to the long COVID clinic? Yeah, I mean, we've been trying to feel our way with that. And inevitably, there's a lot of clinical judgment involved. So the pathway's open to anyone who's been unwell for more than four weeks after COVID. Um, But if obviously, after that four weeks, they're continuing to improve quite nicely, they may be fine just managing their symptoms with some good advice. Um, So if, if, however, they're still unwell after 12 weeks, um, and they are, um, you know, their life is disrupted by this, these symptoms, we would recommend referral to the pathway. Um, And a judgment is made when we get a referral in as to what kind of level of support they need as a starting point. So it might be reasonable for them to go direct to the post-COVID rehabilitation if there aren't any sort of features of obvious concern. Um, If we think that some tests are needed to kind of reassure what the diagnosis is and uh, be confident of the management plan, then we'd bring them up to the clinic. So for the GP, I think it's about looking at the trend in that individual you know, there's a lot of people who get persistent symptoms after COVID. You know, some studies suggest that can be up to 10% of people, but the vast majority will be better by three months. If they are not improving during that time, and if they're still affected after 12 weeks, they really should be offered support for recovery. And during those weeks, giving them good quality advice about managing their symptoms and excluding any sort of dangerous symptoms you know, causes of those symptoms is really important. And and that's where the GP um, plays a really important role. Mm. Do you have, uh, let me think, for patients who might be undergoing chemotherapy or another uh, pretty full-on drug treatment program for some condition, what's your approach with them? Yeah, so it's interesting. They're slightly underrepresented in the patients that we see. Because in in a patient who has another complex condition, um, it's quite hard to pick out those long COVID symptoms as being definitely part of long COVID. Mm. So I think it's something that, you know, the wider health system needs to think actively about and just explore, you know, whether that patient did have a COVID infection that seemed to trigger a, a worsening trend. Um, And what's interesting is that the the models of care that are being developed for long COVID are very likely to be hugely beneficial to to other complex conditions. So this broader focus on general well-being, access to this multifaceted um, therapy approach, you know, that that would be something that many of my patients would benefit Mm. from. So um, I think there's two aspects to that. It's first of all, their usual clinician thinking could this be long COVID? Um, and then just exploring how maybe we're missing a trick in those other conditions and not focusing enough at those other aspects of, of well-being. Um, so, yes, and then there's the specific, you know, end organ effects, we call them, of, of some of, of COVID infection in some people where, you know, they can have ongoing inflammation in the lung or the heart, and that's much rarer. But again, always worth thinking about, especially in someone who's immune compromised, who might have had more difficulty resolving that initial viral infection. Mm-hmm. And any other, I guess, clinically helpful suggestions for uh, our audience who are largely general practitioners? So I think we've struggled most with the, that primary care aspect of the pathway because it's really hard to get the messaging out to all GPs. They're very, very busy in the UK at the moment. So it's just um, thinking long COVID when someone's presenting to you with breathlessness, fatigue, palpitations, chest pain, just don't forget about it as a possibility. Take it seriously. It's not a psychological illness. You know, evaluate them properly and, and monitor them. And if they are not recovering, think about whether you need some further input to try and get them back on the right track. Um, so, yeah, it's just having it in your consciousness. And I, I think the pandemic's followed, obviously, a slightly different course in Australia. So I'm not quite sure 
how common long COVID is in, in your country. And that obviously influences how much as a GP you can learn about it. But there's increasingly online resources, certainly that the NHS are producing um, with e-learning modules and the WHO are doing a lot of work as well. That's great. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I, you know, our hope is that in a couple of years' time, we won't be talking about long COVID anymore. But I think we need to remain vigilant because the best treatment for long COVID is not getting COVID in the first place. So there's really strong messages about vaccination and being alert to any new variants on the horizon and continuing to measure the long COVID impact of, of this, uh, of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, it's really important to help us model services. So please don't forget about it. It's, it's a serious problem. Thank you very much, Dr. Melissa Hartman. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. All the best. That was Dr. Melissa Heitman, Clinical Lead at University College London Hospital's Long COVID Clinic in the UK. We also spoke to Dr. Bruce Patterson from InceldX in the USA and Associate Professor Anthony Byrne from the Long COVID Clinic at Sydney's St. Vincent's Hospital. This has been the second of our Long COVID special podcasts at The Tea Room. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this one, so please leave a comment or drop me an email at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au and do check our show notes for links to any research. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in The Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Love for you to leave us a review. Tea Room is a production from the journalists at The Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au. Keep up to date with all the latest news and views and general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.